Welcome everyone to another episode of the Simulated Universe. I'm Riz Verk, your host, and we'd like to explore topics that are on the boundary between science and science fiction. Today, I'm really excited to have Donald Hoffman with me, who is Professor Emeritus at University of California, Irvine, and is the author of this great book, The Case Against Reality, which I'm guessing many of my listeners may have heard of and probably will have read uh, already. Um, I'm excited to have Don on the podcast because when I published my book about the simulation hypothesis in, in the same year, in 2019, everyone said, oh, you've got to check out you know, the case against reality. And when I started my podcast last year, they said, oh, you've got to interview Don. So um, you know, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Riz. Thank you for your very kind invitation. It's a pleasure. Great. So you know, let's, let's jump right in. Um, uh, so what is evolutionary game theory, like if, if you were to define it for general audience? Right. So all of us have heard about evolution by natural selection and the idea that, uh, you know, creatures that are more fit are the ones that are more likely to reproduce and pass on their genes. And uh, that's sort of the intuitive notion that we all have. A guy named John Maynard Smith in the 1970s realized that he could use the tools of game theory to make the basic ideas of evolution by natural selection very, very precise. And instead of just talking about organisms and, and so forth, we could talk about strategies and competing strategies and look at how strategies um, might reproduce. And so it, so it turned into a, a very nice formal statement of evolution by natural selection that gets rid of all the peripheral stuff and just looks at the, in some sense, the algorithmic core of Darwin's idea. Right? Dar Darwin had an algorithmic idea yeah, it was dressed in the language of organisms and environments and so forth. But there was an algorithmic core, and John Maynard Smith got to that core and wrote it, wrote it down in mathematics. And so that allows us to, uh, you know, go beyond arguments from our intuitive understanding of natural selection to, well, okay, here's this mathematical model of natural selection. We can run simulations and prove theorems. So when it comes to you know disagreements about what natural selection might do. Uh, we don't have to just argue we can actually go to the math and, and have the math tell us things sure so you have the math and are you actually running simulations where uh, there are random choices along the way or where individuals are making choices like the prisoner's dilemma i mean where's the where does the game theory part fit in i guess yeah oh well ab absolutely so in, in these simulations of course where we have random wherever there's necessary we can have random number generators to generate you know random situations and so forth so but the the algorithms that we and the simulations that we did were done by my graduate students um justin mark and brian marion and they ran hundreds of thousands of simulations of foraging games where where simulated creatures are walking around trying to get simulated resources in a simulated world and there are certain payoffs for you know and certain penalties for their actions and, and so we were able, of course, we can do things probabilistically. If we want to make it a, a toss up of, you know, who starts first or something like that, we can throw a random coin and, and things like that. So yeah, whenever, of course, it's very, very easy to, to bring randomness into the algorithm wherever it's, it's appropriate. And so are these graphical games when you talk about doing these simulations or is it more just numerical? You're trying to see who survives, which, you know, which specific, I mean, is it like more like an evolutionary algorithm? Uh, like a genetic algorithm where it's just, you know, based on these sequence of uh, bits or bytes and seeing which one survives, or is it like the game of life where you have an actual graphical game? I think that, that my students, um, 
they were they were interested in getting a PhD, not making a you know a video game, and so you know they, they wanted right. to have the, the most direct route to the PhD. So they just did the simulations and got got the graphs that they would need to present for their dissertation defenses, right? To 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 show what the so so there wasn't much in there in the way of of you know pretty graphics and fun games. But, you know if if they they would have not wanted to spend too much time on that, right? But, yeah, but, that makes sense. Of course, I'm coming at it as a video game guy, so I had to yeah, ask. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and the work that they'd done could easily have been, I mean, it, it, you could put a graphic interface on it and, and you could have seen what was actually happening, absolutely. That would have been fun, but but they, they knew I wasn't going to give them any points for that, so they... I don't <laughs> <think> <laughs> right, right. They, they wanted to get their PhDs done. Makes sense. <laughs> Well, that brings us to perhaps, you know, I guess the, the most popular idea from your book, which is this idea of the interface theory of perception, right? And that reality is like a, a desktop that's being rendered. So how did you come to that conclusion? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about you know, what, what that means. Well, it, it's for a lot of us, it's a very counterintuitive idea. Most of us assume that when I look at the world around me and I see tables and chairs and trees and the moon that, of course, I'm not seeing all of reality, but, but what I'm seeing is not divorced from reality. I mean, if I see a tree, well, you know, I may get the shape a little bit off or the colors a little bit off and maybe I don't know exactly how far away it is. So I'm, I'm not going to be perfectly right, but, but I'm not, you know, I'm seeing something real. There really is a tree and that tree would be there even if there were no, um, observing animals to, to look at it. Um, and the same thing with the moon. The moon presumably has been there for billions of years before anybody was around to even look. Uh, and so, and, and we, we assume that it existed, it had roughly the, the spherical shape that it has and some craters and the whole bit. So we, we assume that our perceptions in the normal case are telling us truths, not exhaustive, but, but, but truths uh, about objective reality. And but what's remarkable is I began to think that evolution with natural selection, my initial idea was that um, was not that deep. I, I was thinking that evolution tries to do things on the cheap. And it tries to do things quickly. So, so maybe it would take too much time and too much energy to see the truth. And so maybe creatures or strategies that uh, spent effort on getting the truth would, would lose if it was too costly to do that. And so I wanted to check that out and see how, how, whether that was enough to tip the scales against seeing the truth. And so that was, so, and that's, you know, that's a reasonable idea, but it's not terribly deep. But my students, when they did their simulations, that, and this is why we do the simulations, uh, they ran into a, a deeper feature. And that was that the fitness payoff functions that guide evolution um, were, there, there are these there are functions that depend on the state of the world. So whatever the world might be, so let's not assume we know what the world is, but whatever the state of the world is and whatever structure it might have depends on that. It also depends on the particular organism, uh, its state and its action. And, and then the range of the function is the set of payoff values where you know, a big value means very likely to reproduce, a very low value means very unlikely to reproduce, or maybe you die, right? That kind of thing. So, so, and, and the key, the key idea that came out of the simulations was, you know, maybe, well, certainly some payoff functions 
aren't going to be homomorphisms or of structures in the world. In other words, they won't preserve structures in the world. So the, suppose the world has some kind of structure, like an order, like we think about the amount of oxygen in the air that we're breathing, right? From 0%, which is very, very low and we, would be deadly for us, to 5%, 10%, all the way up to 100%. And that, that's a total order, right? Zero is less than five, less than 10, and so forth. So suppose, and I'm just using that for an example. I'm not saying that in reality there's air and oxygen. I'm just saying just that's what a total order is. So suppose that objective reality, whatever it might be, has various structures in it. Maybe a total order, maybe a group, maybe you know, you know, a measurable structure, maybe a topology. What is the likelihood that a generic payoff function would actually preserve that information, that order? that structure. And so my students' research began to make it clear that there were certainly some payoff functions that didn't preserve structures in the world. It seems to me it would depend a little bit on how you define the payoff function, right? Or the fitness function, or is that not necessarily the case? Well, so, so payoff function um, is, well, it, if you mean it depends on which payoff function you pick, absolutely. Right, right, right. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because the definition of a payoff function is right as domain is the state of the world, the cross the organism, cross its action into the set of payoff values, say from zero to 100 or whatever it might be. That's a, that's what a payoff function is. But your point is you you, you could pick a, a payoff function that could preserve truth or you could pick a payoff function that doesn't preserve truth. Right. So the real question is a combinatorics question. Okay. What is the probability? that a randomly chosen payoff function would preserve structures in the world. And what is the probability? So, right, so, because evolutionary theory does not tell us, it gives us no prior ideas about what the payoff functions should be. It just says there are payoff functions. So it doesn't say, these are the kind of payoff functions you're gonna see in nature. It doesn't say that at all. It just says, right. There's some payoff function. And so, so I, I realized that um, we needed to actually, the, the simulations are good. Um, we, we find that organisms uh, that saw reality as it is were never out competing organisms that didn't see reality. That, so, but that's, you know, simulations are simulations that, you know, they're, they're not a proof. Maybe I got the wrong environment. Maybe I got the wrong payoff functions. You know, maybe I, I didn't give truth a chance, right? And, you know, Often you need to give truth or chance. Why you're just you're, you can always shoot it down if you're trying to shoot it down. So I went to a mathematician, Chaitan Prakash, who's a, a, a brilliant mathematician, and um, told him the simulation results and suggested a, a couple kinds of theorems that we might go after here. And uh, Chaitan and and a couple other collaborators, but Chaitan is the the real mathematical you know powerhouse here. Um, we we proved that the probability is zero that payoff functions will contain information about the structure of the world. Mm. And that means that creatures who are shaped by the payoff functions cannot be shaped to see the structure of the world. No, so put it this way, no sensory system, well, the probability is zero that any sensory system of any organism has ever been shaped to see any aspect of objective reality, zero. So that's now, now I, I should say my attitude uh, as a scientist toward all these theories. And, and that is that 
I, I'm studying evolution by natural selection because that's the single best theory we have right now in, in biology, right? There's, there's nothing better. I, I'm not saying it's correct. I'm not saying any scientific theory are correct, including my own theories. I, my, my attitude is it's, it's actually counterproductive to believe theories. You know, it's, we, we should always disbelieve our theories. We, we study the, the latest theories because they're the best we've got, but we should always be trying to break our theories and come up with new ones. And so, so, so when I say, you know, this is what evolution of natural selection says, I'm, I'm not saying, and therefore it's the final truth, uh, no, evolution by natural selection is just our current theory. Now, but that's, a, of course, a, a challenge to us. If someone doesn't like this theorem from evolution by natural selection, there's hard work to be done. What deeper theory can we come up with that will account for everything that evolution by natural selection accounts for and where this deeper theory contradicts what I just said, right? I mean, so... That's the challenge that's being put out there. So I'm not doctrinaire about evolution of natural selection. I'm not doctrinaire about any of my theories. In fact, I would bet good money against all of current scientific theories and, and against my own theories. You know, that's the, the goal and the, the joy of science is to progress. And, you know, we, we know from the past history of, of say, in physics, well, around 1890. Yep. So 130 years ago. Physicists, many of them, thought physics was done. Newton was it. There, you know, there were a few little problems, but they, you know, they'd, they'd be taken care of. And, and they discouraged, many, many of them discouraged the, the bright young students to go into physics, go somewhere else. It's, it's pretty much, you know, we, we need second, we, you know, we don't need first rate minds anymore. We just need, you know, people to work out the details. That, that's all we need. And, right. and that's the wrong attitude, right? It was just, I mean, all of the fun stuff is ahead, uh, for physics, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, yep. so so we just have to look at that lesson from history and just assume that um, 120 years from now, 130 years from now, they'll look back at us and go, why didn't they understand all the limitations of their theories? Well, how, how could they have been so short-sighted and so dogmatic? So so I don't want to make that mistake. So, so that's the attitude which I put out this theorem. This is our evolution of natural selection and evolutionary game theory is our best current theory for understanding biology. And that, that, that theory is very, very clear. The probability is zero that any sensory system has ever been shaped to show any organism any structure of reality. Probability is zero. Got it. And so, so what is it that we're seeing if we're not seeing reality? You know, obviously, I come from the background of, of uh, video games, so uh, uh -huh. right. uh, treating life as a simulation. But I, I like your your metaphor of the desktop. So maybe you could, you know, talk a little bit about that, and then we can talk about what's behind the metaphor. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, what what evolutionary theory clearly states is that our sensory systems are shaped to guide adaptive behavior. So all the perceptual icons that we have are there for one purpose, not to show the truth, not to tell the truth, but to guide adaptive behavior. So it is like a, a desktop interface on your computer, for example, right? Where if you're writing an email and, or writing a, a book and the, uh, the icon on your desktop for your book is blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen, it doesn't mean the book is blue and rectangular in the middle of your, your hard drive or your, your computer somewhere. Anybody who thought that just misunderstands the whole point of, of the desktop interface. It's, it's not there to show you the truth. It, explicitly, it's there to hide the truth. 
so that you don't have to toggle voltages and, and worry about magnetic fields when you're writing your book. That's what you're really doing when you write a book. You're toggling voltages and changing magnetic fields somewhere in your computer. But if you had to deal with that, good luck trying to write your book or, or writing an email or editing your photo. It'd just be That's the case where the reality, knowing the reality and having to, to face the reality and interact with the reality as it is, would get in the way of, of performing what you want to perform. So it, it, it would, instead of enhancing your fitness, seeing the truth, gets in, in the way of getting the job done. So it, it hurts your fitness. And that's sort of what, what, what this theory is telling us. Evolution is saying our, our senses evolved to help us behave in ways that let us survive and reproduce. Well, it turns out that seeing the truth doesn't help you behave in ways that to survive and, and see the truth. So what you need is eye candy, like a, like a video game. Like, like if you're playing, say, a virtual reality version of Grand Theft Auto. You have a headset on and a bodysuit and you see a steering wheel and a, you know, a dashboard and other cars that you're, you're racing. Uh, you know, the steering wheel that you see is, as you turn it to the left, uh, you're toggling millions of voltages per second in some computer somewhere. But if you had to play the game by literally going through the right sequence of voltage togglings every second, that you needed to do to to to, you know, to race around the Ferrari and avoid hitting the Mustang and so forth. Good luck. You, you you can't do it fast enough. So you need to just be able to turn a steering wheel and hit a gas pedal or hit a brake. So so that's what evolution gave us is this top level game interface that lets us play the game of life without any need to know the truth and in fact no access to that truth. And, and moreover, it looks like um, developmental psychologists tell us that evolution has also sort of programmed us to believe the game. So when you're about four months of age, you get what developmental psychologists call object permanence, which is the, the deep-seated belief that, um, like you're, you're four months old, so maybe it's a baby doll. If your mom takes the baby doll and sticks it behind a pillow, the doll didn't cease to exist. It's still... That, that's the truth, the doll is the truth, and it really exists behind the pillow. And if you go behind the pillow, you will, you will find that doll. So, so we get the idea that objects really exist, so we're seeing reality, and that reality persists even when we don't look. And so, so that, that's before the age of consent. So, so we believe this, not because we were argued into it, but because we were programmed by evolution to believe it. And so the reason why I'm, what I'm saying is so counterintuitive is because evolution programmed us all to completely disbelieve what I'm saying. You're supposed to believe the game. Right, so are you saying that if there were versions of us, say earlier in the evolutionary cycle, who didn't believe in the permanence of objects, perhaps that has been um, kind of pruned off the evolutionary tree? Uh, is, is... Right, there are no selective advantages I see. to a creature or an organism that is aware that its perceptions aren't the truth right there there aren't any right. selection pressures that doesn't help you survive at least in, in, you would think in, in normal evolutionary situations which is very very interesting then so so why is it that now you know we're, we're starting to be aware that this is what evolution entails well it's, in some sense it's only because you know People like my graduate students and me, we're no longer just like at the edge of life and trying, you know, barely <laughs> hanging on and, you know, fighting for, you know, we have lots of spare time and, you know, we have time to, to mess around and do stuff. 
And all of a sudden we're discovering these things that, you know, that, hey, we've been, evolution has, you know, pulled the wool over our eyes. It's, it's made us believe the game and it's, and it's just a game. Now, eventually maybe this will have um, fitness payoffs that, that, that are, are very, very positive. Because once you understand, right, if you're a, a wizard at Grand Theft Auto, right, everybody's impressed in you. You know, you can do things that no one else can do and they're, they're, they're worshiping you and so forth. But if you're the software engineer that actually built Grand Theft Auto, you can take the gas out of the wizard's tank. You can give him flat tires or, or her, you know. Make, right. Make All you her. have to do is modify the data a little bit, the data stream that's being sent. <laughs> that, that's right. And so yeah. we may be able to, once we, now that we understand that space time, this is the weird thing, space time itself which we think of as the pre-existing reality, the stage that's been there for 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. That's just a data structure. It's like a computer science data structure. We can actually, as you know, think about it in engineering terms. So what is the data compressing, error correcting kind of codes that, are, that, that constitute space-time? How can we reverse engineer this game and figure out what's behind it? Can we reverse engineer it? And can we can we actually go behind the game into the software? So that's and if so, maybe we could actually play with the actual structure of space time itself, just like the software engineer could play with the structure of the space that Grand Theft Auto is is is, is using. Maybe make it not a non Euclidean space. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, right. I mean, exactly. If we can get access to the 3D modeling software <laughs> that is used to create right, this reality, right. that gives us, and, and actually provides an explanation for many things that science hasn't been able to explain also. Um, but but let's talk a little bit about, um, so another metaphor that I like to use with people is, uh, for example, right now, I'm talking to you, but I'm not really talking to you, right? There's a right. rendering of you on my screen, and there's a rendering of me on your screen. And so is that kind of a metaphor that fits your idea that perhaps each of us is rendering things on our own screens? And then let's perhaps, you know, talk a little bit about your, your conscious agents idea as well from that perspective. Absolutely. So all we're seeing is avatars, right? When I, even right. if I were there in person with you, if we were there face to face, I, I don't see you and you don't see me. I see the avatar that I'm creating, right? Because what I see disappears when I turn my head, but you don't disappear, presumably. Uh, you know, your, your consciousness, for example, doesn't cease to exist if I blink. During that blink, your conscious. So the avatar that I'm creating um, is not you. And in fact, if you look at your own face in the mirror, right? You know that what you're seeing, like you just see skin, hair, and eyes, but you know that the uh, firsthand that there's the rich world of your conscious experiences, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your headache, the colors that you're seeing, the things that you're smelling, the anger that you're feeling or the elation that you're feeling. That's this incredibly rich world of conscious experiences hidden behind this trivial avatar that you see in, 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 the, in the mirror. And so actually, when I look at myself right now, look at my hands and so forth, uh, I'm not seeing me, I'm, I'm seeing avatars um, because th what this theorem says is that when I look at my hand, I'm not seeing the truth. I don't know what the reality is of what I'm really interacting with. All I see is a data structure, a hand, that, and that's it. And when I look at my face and my body in the mirror, that's not me. It's, it's just an avatar and the reality. So I actually don't know what I'm doing. 
right? When you're, so by that, what yeah. I mean, like in Grand Theft Auto, when, when you turn your steering wheel to the left and your car goes left, well, you would say, well, the, that shows that the steering wheel really has causal powers because I turn the steering wheel to the left, the car goes left so that, you know, I've intervened with the steering wheel. If I can intervene and predict what's going to happen, surely I've got cause and effect. Well, no, because that steering wheel doesn't even exist. If I turn my headset over there, I'm no longer rendering a headset, a, a steering wheel. And so there is no steering wheel. So the real, in, in that metaphor, the real thing that's happening is when I turn the steering wheel to the left, again, millions of voltages are being toggled in some supercomputer. And that's, that's what's really going on. That's what I'm really doing. But I don't know in the game what I'm really doing. All I see is my, my avatar hands on a virtual steering wheel, turning it to the left. I don't know what I'm really doing. And I'm saying that that's true, not only in the video game, it's true right now as I wave my hands. I don't know what I'm really doing. All I know is the avatar description, which is trivial compared to what I'm really doing in objective reality. So this really, this really opens up, I mean, it, it, talk about, we don't know anything. This, this just makes, whoa. So I, I mean, I just thought, I look around and I'm seeing the truth. No, I, I'm seeing the game icons and whatever is behind those game icons is is far more interesting and complicated than what i'm seeing yeah now could it be you know in computer science we have layers of abstraction right so right. even with a, say a game like grand theft auto you know the hardware and the voltages are one level but beyond that there's the operating system and then there's the actual data right. for the program and that's the data that gets rendered by the program so is it possible that we have these multiple layers of abstraction as well there's the data but then there's something else behind it that could be the hardware absolutely there's there's countless theories now that we could explore about what is what is the true nature of reality but but notice it's not space and time it's right inside space and time that's then that's the real stunner right science since galileo has been about what happens in space and time our assumption in science has been that space-time began at the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, and that the reality is space-time and energy and matter with, within space-time. Life came billions of years later, presumably, or, or hundreds of millions of years later, and consciousness came even later than that. So, we're, so from that point of view, space-time is this big fundamental stage, and we're little bit players that have come on in the last few seconds of the, of the, of the play. Uh, you know, and we'll, and we'll be gone very, very soon, but the stage, space-time itself, will, will persist. And, and what I'm saying is that contradicts evolution by natural selection. The very language of space and time almost surely is not the right language to even describe objective reality. We need an utterly different language. And I should say, by the way, it's not just evolution by natural selection. Physicists are saying the same thing. So you, you can just Google the phrase, space-time is doomed. If you Google so I, I was going to ask you about that. So uh, how have physicists reacted to, uh, you know, space time, to you saying space time is not really there? I mean, you know, Einstein was reluctant to accept quantum, you know, quantum, the observer effect in quantum mechanics, because he said, well, you know, if I'm not looking at the moon, is the moon not there? Or does it take a mouse to look at the moon? And is that enough for a sideways glance to be there? Like you know, when you think of the Einstein Bohr debates right. that went on, you know, and, and so I'm curious as to, you know, whether you've talked to some of the more materialist physicists out there, 
uh, you know, whether it's people like I don't know, Sean Carroll and others right. who are who are now moving towards the many worlds interpretation because it cuts out consciousness and makes right. it seem, seem as if there is a material reality. And, and so, you know, what's been the reaction from corners like that? Or, or, or have you not had much interaction with those guys, I guess? Well, I've had some interaction. And, and of course, physicists are um, not of one voice. Right? So there are brilliant physicists like Nima Arkani Hamed and David Gross and Ed Witten, who have all gone public and said space-time is doomed. And this is independent of me, not because of me. They, they probably they said that not knowing my name. <laughs> um, so so they, they came at it purely from a physics point of view. And the, the argument that, for example, Nima gives is um, in quantum mechanics, when you try to measure something, you have to not only talk about the thing you're measuring, say the elect, the magnetic moment of the electron. So I'm gonna measure the magnetic moment of the electron to a certain precision. So I need the system that I'm going to observe, the electron, and I need an apparatus. But the apparatus itself is also a quantum mechanical system. And so it is also subject to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And so if I want to get more and more precision in the measurement of the electron, I need to have more and more degrees of freedom in the measuring apparatus itself. And so, so what Nemo says is imagine any fixed size room, you know, the size of a football field or whatever. And you want to, so you have, but some finite, but as large as you want, fixed size room. And you want to measure the magnetic moment of electron or whatever you're trying to measure to some precision. Well, as you get more and more precision in what you want to measure, uh, you're going to have a bigger and bigger apparatus because of the more and more degrees of freedom that you need. And at some point, um, uh, you're going to collapse the whole room into a black hole because the degrees of freedom um, require mass. Mass um, is going to, you know, according to Einstein's theory of gravity, uh, curve space-time. And once you curve it too much, the whole thing collapses into a black hole. And so, you, so it's, what, what they've discovered is, and this is the way the, the physicists put it, there are no local observables anywhere in our space-time. There's nothing that can be preserved, uh, measured to um, a high precision within our space-time to, I mean, arbitrary high precision. So, so, and so that's for our space-time, which is De Sitter space. So that, that's a real problem there. And this is also the reason why they've gone to some of these holographic kinds of, um, discussions. So this with anti-decider space, ADS CFT theory, where where you can actually space-time there are no local observables, but you can put, you know, measuring measuring systems at infinity at the boundary. And and there you could get the kind of precision that you that you wanted. But in our space-time, decider space, where it's it's a finite volume space that's huge, but it's finite, and the universe is expanding, we have only a finite number of degrees of freedom, completely. And so we're, we're far from infinite precision. Even if you take the whole universe, we're nowhere near having infinite precision. So there just are no local observables according to quantum theory. So this is quantum theory and gravity. When you bring quantum theory and gravity together, then you realize that um, there's nothing that's observable precisely in, in, in our space-time. So, so that leads them to say that space-time itself is an emergent, structure, it has to emerge from something deeper. And they're finding things like the 
structures that they call the amplitudehedron, spacehedron, cosmological polytope. They're actually finding these these beautiful mathematical structures that are that are beyond space-time, that have symmetries, that are true, of for example scattering events at the Large Hadron Collider. They're actually true symmetries that cannot be captured in space-time. And also the mathematics becomes simpler. When you actually let go of space-time, calculating the scattering amplitudes um, becomes trivial outside of space-time. In space-time, it could be literally hundreds of pages of algebra for like two gluons in, five gluons going out. So, so the physicists are saying on principled grounds, we, we realize that space-time is doomed. And, and when we take that seriously and we look for structures behind space-time, we're finding them. And when we find these structures, they're having symmetries that don't exist in space-time, but are true of the data, and they make the math simpler. So in some sense, we're being, there's a big hint here that, that you know, again, that, that now this is now how I would put it, that space-time isn't the final thing, it's just a headset, and there's a deeper reality behind the headset that we need to understand. When you look at things from within the headset, it's because you've like smashed this rich world, collapsed it down into a headset. You've lost all sorts of information. And that's going to make things a lot harder if you're trying to really understand how things really work and all you can see was what's on your interface. So the physicists are, are coming there. So I would say this, the three main pillars of modern science, which are Einstein's theory of gravity, quantum field theory, evolution by natural selection all three of these pillars are saying to us space-time is doomed it's been a good ride for 400 years space-time has been a really really helpful framework but space-time is doomed and with it reductionism right reductionism is the idea that as we go to smaller and smaller scales in space-time we get to more and more fundamental laws about how reality works well, it, it turns out that you can't go any smaller than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. That's as small as you can go before space-time ceases to make sense. It's not that there are pixels of space-time, it's just that the, the very concept of space-time is no longer coherent. And, and so space-time is doomed. The notion of reductionism is false because you, you, you there is no such thing as going to smaller and smaller scales. You can only go so far. And then what happens is if you try to go smaller, you need to use more energy to look finer and finer scales. What happens is when you get down to around 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, you, you start creating black holes. And as you try to put more energy in and try to you know look harder, the black holes just get bigger and bigger. So now you're actually going at larger and larger scales all of a sudden. So the you know, so the idea is that normally when you try to probe nature at finer finer scales look at smaller and smaller bits you have to use you know like for example light with smaller and smaller wavelengths shorter wavelengths right so otherwise you couldn't resolve the thing so you need shorter and shorter wavelengths but energy equals Planck's constant times the frequent e equals h nu but but you, you can show that as you go to smaller and smaller wavelengths the energy is going up and up and at some point, around 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, um, you create a black hole. And so, so the very process of trying to there's something to go, that stops you from really, at that point, measuring anything. And, that, and, that, that's right. Yeah. Well, it, it, you, you destroy the thing that you're trying to see. 
<laughs> so that'll stop you. <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. And, and in the big room I was mentioning, you, you destroy yourself because you're in the room trying to do the measurement and the whole room gets collapsed into a black hole. So, <laughs> right. So if we try to understand it that way, we will destroy matter or, rea or the reality that we're trying to, to figure out. So if space-time is an emergent property, I mean, what in your opinion is it an emergent property of? Well, so I'll tell you what the physicists are doing. They don't know, but they're finding these mathematical structures. So what they're doing is they're, I mean, you can see the problem that they've got. Space-time has been the foundation for, for centuries. We now have are being told that it's not fundamental. So what's behind space-time? How do you, how do you, what kind of flashlight can you use to peer into the dark behind space-time? And, and what they're doing is using mathematics. They're saying, well, can we get from the current mathematical structures that we have from quantum field theory and gravity and so forth, can we somehow like try to find deeper structures that when they project back into space-time, give us back quantum field theory and give us back the stuff that we can see in space-time. So you can see that's a smart way to do things, right? So you, you guess, uh, Nima calls this the irresponsible part of, his, of the work that he's doing. The responsible part is really understanding our current theories in, in space-time because we have good evidence for those theories being empirically adequate in space-time. But now the irresponsible part is let's just guess some deep structures. Right that are mathematical and then see if they work, if we can project them back into space time and get back. And so that's how they're going about it. But, but you can see this is, this is not easy. This is uh, it's fun work, but by the way, you know, the younger generation of physicists, this is not a problem. This is like really exciting, right? This is their, their chance to make big discoveries. Now I'm in the same boat. I don't know what's behind space time either. So all I can do is guess. So, and, and I'm proposing something different, right, than, than the physicists. The physicists are, are just, but, but I wanna connect with the physicists in a way that I'll, I'll mention later. But, so my interest is in the hard problem of consciousness. That's my motivation for my, my proposal. And, and the hard problem of consciousness is, is a surprising problem. Um, a lot of people might not understand that how difficult this problem is. It, it's something that seems simple. Uh, you have conscious experiences. Like you, you look around the room, you see, I, I see uh, an, an orange hard drive on my desk. I see, you know, brown slippers. I see a red apple. And we can find correlations between brain activity and the various things that I see. For example, area V4 of, of cortex, which is roughly back, back here, say on the left hemisphere, is correlated with your color experiences. And if I take a magnet called a transcranial transcranial magnetic stimulator and touch it to area before, just touch it to your skull near that area and put it in a hood mode, um, you will lose all color experience in the right visual world. It'll just be shades of gray, like a black and white TV, but you'll have color in the left part of your visual world. So, and then I turn the magnet off and the color comes back. So we can literally play with your color experience. We're intervening on your brain with a magnet and that intervention on your brain is leading to a change in color experience and there are others we can get rid of your motion perceptions and then turn them back on and and, and so, so, so is this showing that our perceptions are actually electromagnetic in nature to the fact that we can modify them uh, or is it suggesting something else well it's it's that was why i mentioned that it looks like with the grand theft auto steering wheel we, we can intervene <laughs> and we get 
predictable results. And we think, therefore, the steering wheel has causal powers. And I argued that, no, it doesn't. And I'm arguing the same thing for the brain. So we can intervene on the brain and get changes in our conscious experiences. But, but I claim that the brain is an icon that we render when we happen to look inside skulls. Otherwise, the brains don't even exist. So neurons, see, space-time itself is just a data format. It's not a reality. It's not, a, it's not independent of us. It's, 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 a, it's a format. It's, it's, it's a reality in the sense that it's a real aspect of our perceptions, right? Just like the, the, the steering wheel is a real aspect of the Grand Theft Auto interface, but it's not a part of the reality you know, in terms of the supercomputer driving the game. And so what I'm saying is that brains and neurons don't even exist when they're not perceived. They have no causal powers. And so the brain causes none of our behaviors and none of our conscious experiences. And yet, and yet, there are these correlations between brain activity and conscious experiences. And we want to explain them, right? So the, the correlations have to be explained, but the standard theory that the brain causes the conscious experiences um, can't be true if evolution by natural selection is true and quantum field theory and Einstein's gravity are true. Because those theories are telling us that space-time isn't fundamental and therefore brains aren't fundamental. Nothing inside space-time is fundamental. It has no causal powers. So I'm proposing to turn it around. And of course, I'll just say right up front, of course I'm probably wrong, but, but you know we're, we're trying to take our first steps outside of space-time. So I'm proposing that what's outside of space-time is a vast social network of consciousnesses, where I have a mathematically precise model of what I mean by what I, the technical term for me is a conscious agent. So for those who are interested and want to see the math, there's a paper called Objects of Consciousness that we published. So if you just Google my name and the title Objects of Consciousness, you can read the math for yourself and, and see if you like it. But the idea is that we have this mathematically precise model of, of what consciousness is, conscious agent, and there's this vast social network of interacting conscious agents, like the Twitterverse, there's like a vast social network. And just like with the, the Twitterverse, right, there's literally tens of millions of Twitter users, billions of tweets. There's no way that a Twitter user could ever read all the tweets or interact with all those users. It's just just overwhelming amount of data. So what do we do when we have overwhelming social data like this? Well, we use visualization tools, right? I, I would love to have some kind of VR headset kind of thing with simple colored objects that do simple kinds of actions that let me know, say, what's trending in New York versus LA or what's going on in all the United States versus, you know, Brazil. Uh, or lets me zoom into a particular, um, you know, person's house. You know, what what is Joe, you know, tweeting right now in, in, you know, on Fifth Avenue in New York City? So, so that's what space-time is. Conscious agents are, form this vast social network. Some conscious agents have a visualization tool that they use to dumb this network down so they can understand what's going on and they can interact with it. And, and they use a visualization tool that we call space-time and physical objects. Other conscious agents will use other visualization tools. But, but that's, that's the thing. Space-time, we've always assumed, is the fundamental nature of reality. And that's a rookie now, mistake. Now you're assuming that consciousness is fundamental. Is that right? I think a, I heard you say that. Yeah. That's right. So, so, that's a, so in this model, um, 
conscious experiences and conscious agency, the ability to make choices based on the experiences is the fundamental notion. So those are the primitives. So there's this like a, a, a vast social network that, that's going on. That's the fundamental reality. And the physical world is a dumbed down user interface, a visualization tool to help us grok this, this vast network of conscious agents. And so are we individual agents? So in, in the simulation world, I often like to say, you know, there's two versions of simulation theory. There's the NPC version where we're just, you know, characters based on the bits that are running on the computer. And there's the RPG version where we are actually exist outside the avatar and we're the consciousness that's playing the avatar in Grand Theft Auto or in World of Warcraft. So is, is this compatible with that idea that we exist consciousness outside of the physical world and that we're playing these avatars? Or is it not necessarily saying that? Well, the way I'm thinking about it is the avatars um, are just avatars and that the consciousnesses are, are, are doing their own thing, but, but only are experienced through their avatars. The, you know, all, all, I, all I can see is my avatar of you and you can only see your avatar of me, but the consciousnesses are, 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 are real in this theory. And, and by the way, it's not just that, that you are one consciousness, you are two plus those are all divided into countless others. And I can give you the evidence for why you're, you're actually more than one consciousness if you're interested, but. Yeah, uh, sure. Why don't we go into that? Why, why are we more than one consciousness, each of us? Yeah. Right, so this, this comes now from some interesting work that um, actually a friend of mine, uh, Joe Bogan did. Um, uh, there was trouble with epilepsy that couldn't be controlled by the drugs a few decades ago. And in very extreme cases to help these people that were really at, at their wits end um, because the seizures were frequent and, and serious, um, they, Joe would actually take the top of the skull off, take a scalpel and split the brain in half. So your brain has two hemispheres, a left, a left and a right hemisphere. And they each have about 43 billion neurons and there's a band of fibers, like an ethernet cable between the two, um, that has about 200 million to 225 million axons in it. So what Joe would do is take a scalpel and just cut that, sometimes all the way, but or sometimes just part, if you could get away with just part. And it, it, it was a clinical success. It really helped the people that had these um, seizures to have them less frequently and, and, and less uh, seriously. So it was a clinical success, but experiments that uh, Roger Sperry and, and Mike Gazaniga and others did revealed, and also um, a friend of mine, V.S. Ramachandran, um, they, they found the following kinds of things. The left hemisphere can have utterly different contents of consciousness than the right hemisphere. You can have the right hemisphere thinking about a word and the left hemisphere has no idea what the word is and they can play 20 questions and the, the left hemisphere might lose. So it turns out the left hemisphere is controlling like your right hand and it controls your speech. Your right hemisphere controls your left hand. And so, but the right hemisphere can't talk. You can cuss, but it can't talk. So, so suppose the right hemisphere, hemisphere is thinking about a word like tooth and the left hemisphere guesses and says, is it um, a vegetable? And, and, and the right hemisphere wants to say no. It could take the left hand and, and put its thumb down because it can control the left hand. So you're so saying says, one side would be talking and one side would be controlling that's its right, hands. That's right. <laughs> to answer. And so, so you literally are having the two hemispheres. The, the, the consciousnesses are so separate that they can pay, play 20 questions and one hemisphere can lose. It can't guess what the other one is thinking about. 
and both are sophisticated enough to understand language. The right hemisphere understands language, it just can't talk. So, and they, they have different goals in life. In one person, the right hemisphere wanted to be a race car driver, the left hemisphere wanted to have a, a desk job. <laughs> well, I think to a certain extent, we all have those, uh, right? those yeah, that's right. Just ideas to actually come <laughs> home, right? With like, yeah, Friday yeah. night, I part of me wants to go out and have party, and another one wants to be a geek and you know do some study or something like that. And <laughs> it, it, it could be that maybe the right hemispheres say, "Hey, let's go party," and left hemisphere is saying, "No, no, no, I, you know, I want to, you know, I want to be a, a, a geek tonight." Um, and also different religious beliefs. In one guy, the right hemisphere was an atheist; left hemisphere believed in God. So, so you're not just one agent, you're, you're two. And I claim the, the mathematics that I'm working on with my, with my team. And I, and by the way, it's, it's not just me, it's a whole team of us that is working on this. Um, the, that it's a whole lattice, a whole network of, of interacting conscious agents where when agents interact, they form new coherent agents. So that's this part of the math that interacting agents can create new agents. And so, yes, it's true that I'm one agent, but it's also true if my corpus callosum is intact, that I'm too, you know, if my corpus callosum is, is not intact, you'll see explicitly that I'm two agents, but if it's intact, then I'm one and two and all these others as well. But in that case, are you, you're kind of saying that one side of the brain is one conscious agent and the other side is another. Isn't that going back to the materialist view that this conscious agent is these neurons and this conscious agent is these neurons? Or does, would it also apply in the case of say multiple personalities where, you know, I've heard of cases where, you know, a different personality has a, you know, diabetes and the other one doesn't. And, and there's like all kinds of various things that happen, which, which isn't so much based on individual neurons. Um, so, you know, uh, I guess, do the conscious agents tie to specific brain elements or are they more abstract logical things that are being somehow playing the, uh, you know, the, with the cells? Yeah. Well, it's sort of like you and your avatar in a video game. Right, yeah. you, you're playing the avatar, but you're not the avatar. You're not even inside the avatar, and yet, right. So yet, the conscious agent is like that. Then yeah, is that's right. The it's outside, agent out, agent, yeah. completely out. It's it's in fact. I'll, I'll be very explicit. We think of ourselves as creatures in space time. Yep. I'm saying it's just the other way around. Space time is a data structure that you create as a consciousness. So you're a consciousness. And space-time is inside of your consciousness, not the other way around. So you're, you're not a consciousness in space-time. Space-time is a data structure in your consciousness. And your body that you see in space-time is just an avatar that you stick inside that data structure. Right. So in this case, we as conscious agents exist outside of space-time and exactly. outside of our bodies. Exactly. And so, you know, now you're touching on, uh, on, on some metaphysical ideas, you know, and yeah. I know it, I, and I'm wondering, you know, whether you get some of that, like when, when I did my book on the simulation hypothesis, I devoted about a third of it to looking at religions and what they've been saying all along that the physical world is not the real world. But I get a lot of pushback from people in the scientific community saying, hey, why are you talking about religions and metaphysics and all that stuff? Uh, this is, you know, or not, this is kind of not scientific to talk about that, that kind of stuff. So, so I'm curious, you know, what, what the reaction has been on, on, on that side, because you are kind of saying that there's something, you're not using the religious terminology of souls, or reincarnation or karma or any of that stuff, right? No, no, I'm not. And, and, and in my book, I, I, I don't. Um, but the, and of course, I'm sticking very, very close to the science, current scientific theories, like evolution, but natural selection, for example, and I, in my book, I do talk about the physics stuff as well. 
But then the theory of, of conscious agents that I'm proposing is, is not a hand wave. It's, it's probably wrong, but it's at least precise, right? It's a mathematically precise model so that people can look at the math and say, you know, why did you put this mathematical structure? I mean, it, it's whereas now, now I do recognize that an interesting thing between science and, and religion is that that I'm saying that that science has just now gotten to the point where science is saying space time is doomed. Right. Right. So science has been a, for 400 years since Galileo. Yeah. It's been about what happens inside space time. That's what science has been about. And now the three pillars of science, as I mentioned, gravity, quantum field theory, evolution and natural selection are all saying it's over. Space time is not fundamental. Well, the, the, the spiritual traditions have been saying that for thousands of years, right? Right. Yep. The, and so they've been saying, you know, space, space time is not the final reality. There's a deeper reality that goes beyond it. And, right, that and, it's an illusion, like Maya in the Eastern traditions, for example. Yeah. Exactly, exactly right. And and now, you know, I'm saying that evolution by natural selection is saying it's an illusion. That it's a useful illusion, but it's an illusion. It's it's just a data structure. But but here's here's the deal: the science, from this point of view, for centuries now, has only been studying our headset. Right. But we've been doing a really good job of learning the, the rigorous tools of mathematical models and scientific experiments as we've been studying our headset. We were rookies in the sense that we thought that space-time was the fundamental reality. That was a fundamental mistake. But we got so good that our own theories came back and slapped us in the face and said space-time is doomed. <laughs> right? So so that's yeah. how good science is. That's, that's really impressive that space-time I mean, the science gets so good that its own best theories say, you know what, these theories are about space time and stuff inside space time. But these theories are telling us that space time can't be it, that there's got to be something deeper. So here's this is a really, really interesting point in human history. The religious traditions have been saying this for thousands of years, but they haven't had these tools. They've had their own right. tools like meditation and so forth. Yep. But those are not the and those are important tools. They're they're a, a good an important way to study consciousness. But science has these other tools, complementary tools, that have proven extremely powerful. And so, and one thing that these tools do is they destroy dogmatism. Many scientists are dogmatic. Yeah. But when other scientists bring mathematical evidence and empirical evidence against your theory, you've got to get, you've got to let it go, right? At some point, you've got to let it go. And so, these tools of science are new. We've, we've only had them for three or 400 years. I mean, these are brand new tools. And now the, the, the dudes that have figured out these tools are now waking up to, hey, there's something beyond space time. And they're already using these tools to go outside of space time. So what I can see coming now is let's take the insights of the spiritual traditions, take them seriously. But like any scientific theory, don't believe them. I don't, as I said, I don't believe my own theories. Don't believe anything. Respect everything in the sense of taking it seriously, seriously enough that you try to break it. That's what it means to take something seriously, push it to its limits. So let's take our ideas like the notion of God or some religious traditions or Brahman or whatever it might be. Let's make it mathematically precise. So for example, in my language, and this is just a toss off, you know, I've got these notions of conscious agents. When you combine conscious agents, you, you can get new conscious agents. So here's, here's a first definition of God, an infinite conscious agent. 
Now, of course, that's, that's almost surely wrong. But the point is, it's absolutely mathematically precise. It's, and it's the first time I've ever heard of a mathematically precise definition of God. Now we can figure out why I'm wrong. See, when we don't have a mathematical definition, you're not even right. wrong. So at least <laughs> I can be the first person in history that's wrong about their notion of God because I have a precise notion. So I, I, I get the, the ding of being the first person who was wrong, right? But that's the whole point <laughs> uh, is to actually get to the point where we can be wrong. So what I see is this rapprochement between science and spirituality, where we use the tool of science, look at the beautiful insights from the spiritual traditions and start to be rigorous about what we're, what we're saying. The, I'll put it this way. The spiritual traditions have really good ideas, possibly, and they need to have serious attention paid to them. They need to get the kind of rigorous attention that they deserve. And, and an example, again, of this is something like Einstein. So in 1907, Einstein had what we called the happiest thought of his life, that he was thinking about gravity and he realized that if he was in an elevator, standing on a weighing scale, and all of a sudden, the elevator went into free fall, he would be weightless. He, he, he would have no weight on the scale. That was his big idea, the happiest thought of his life. And, but it took him seven or eight years. And this is Einstein. He's, he's not Hoffman. He's <laughs> smart. It took him seven or eight years of learning new math, Riemannian geometry, getting tutored by his, his mathematical friends, sleepless nights, pulling his hair out, trying giving his idea the attention it deserved until finally, I think in 1915, he wrote down the right equation, Einstein's field equations of, of general relativity. And, but, but it took all that effort to take the idea and make it precise. A year later, Schwarzschild writes back to Einstein and says, your equations have this solution, what we now call a black hole. Right. Well, Einstein didn't guess that. He didn't like it. He disbelieved black holes for decades. So that the, the theory that he wrote down, which was based on Einstein's idea, came back and was Einstein's teacher. It taught him. And then it also taught him that space is not static. His equations showed that almost surely space-time is either expanding or contracting. It's not just staying still. Einstein hated that too. But that's the reason we, we take our ideas <clears throat> and make them precise because we're not smart enough. Even if you're Einstein, you're not smart enough to understand all the implications of your ideas. So that's why we have to take all these spiritual ideas, find the, the gold in them, make it precise, and then we can actually become students of these ideas, like Einstein became student of his own idea, of his own theory. And that's, that's where now religion or spiritual traditions can start to reap the benefits of the new tools that humanity has discovered in just the last three or four centuries. So that's the, what I think is the exciting way forward. Science, the tools of science, some of the ideas of spirituality, and we can begin to explore these ideas. And, and what we're gonna find is a lot of stuff that we were sure of, we'll find out we were wrong. And then we will find surprises, things that we were sure aren't true we're going to find, well, maybe we should take those a little bit more seriously. That's, that's, that's what happens. And that's why we need all these tools. Yeah. And that's a great perspective. And, you know, not one that I often hear from scientists, you know, where 
you know, you're willing to question fundamental beliefs about the nature of reality. And I think like you said about physicists in the 1890s, right? There's a lot of physicists today who feel like we're just finishing the details of these theories and trying to link them, but not realizing there may be completely other theories outside of these uh, that, that might give us some new insight into what's really happening. Cool. Right, I, I, I agree with you. It's, I think that there is no theory of everything. Right? The, you know, the, we've heard about the physicists trying to give us a, a theory of everything. I think there's no such thing. I think it's in the very nature of scientific theories that there can be no theory of everything because a scientific theory necessarily has assumptions at its foundation. Like Einstein's special relativity, he says, if you grant me two basic assumptions, two postulates, Postulate one, the laws of physics are the same in all inertial frames. Postulate two, the speed of light is the same for all observers uh, in, in constant motion. That's it, the, the speed of light is universal, those two, but those are two assumptions that you, so if you, and what Einstein is saying, if you grant me those, then I can build up Minkowski's, you know, eventually what we call Minkowski space and special relativity, and all these things follow from it. It's, it's an incredible, beautiful theory that comes out, but those are the two postures. You, you can now say, but. But why should it be that the speed of light is universal for all observers, right? In all reference frames. Why should it be that the laws of physics are the same in all, all inertial frames? Is there, you know, we, we, we would want to ask why, right? Just like a little kid asking their dad, maybe a five-year-old, but daddy, why is the sky blue? But what, why is that? And every time you answer, they, give, they ask a, a deeper why. Well, yeah. the way we're gonna answer that as scientists is come up with a new theory with deeper assumptions. So now I'm no longer assuming you know, speed of light is universal. I'm assuming something else. And I'll explain why the speed of light is universal. But now you've got some new assumptions. And that's we'll never get to the bottom. There'll always be assumptions there. So there can never be a theory of everything, only a theory of everything except for my assumptions. <laughs> and what are the assumptions that you have in your conscious agents theory? Two big ones. The conscious experiences exist and are fundamental. And second, the conscious experiences inform choices and that those choices affect conscious experiences of other agents. So experiences are real. They inform choices, which have the effect of affecting other experiences of other agents. That's the fun. Notice I'm not assuming the notion of self, intelligence, learning, memory, problem solving, but it turns out when, when you look at the mathematics of what I've written down, which is there are conscious experiences, I write that down as a, a probability space, the space of your conscious experiences of the agent, and they inform choices. I write down what's called a Markovian kernel to describe those, those choices. And so I've got essentially this, this vast interacting network of you know, kernels, Markovian kernels, and it's easy to show that this network of conscious agents is computationally universal. Anything that you can do with a network, uh, you know, a, a neural network, a deep learning network, or anything like that, anything that's computable can be computed with a network of conscious agents. So I can and, build. And so these agents have. I mean, I, I was looking a little bit at your papers, but and we don't want to get too much in the mathematics. But so a, a single conscious agent is defined as what a set of experiences and a set of choices. Is that kind of how you would define one conscious agent? Effectively, it's it's a um, a probability space where the, the basic elements of the probability space are the conscious experiences that this agent can have. Okay. And, and then the other aspect is what you could think of as a, a matrix in the finite case. So it's, it's a, it's a probability, each row of the matrix is a probability measure. And basically it's, it's what it's saying is the first row is if I have experience number one, 
these are the probabilities for how I will go uh, affect the experiences of other agents. If my experience is number two, then this row gives me the probabilities of how I will go out and affect other agents. So it's it's uh, it's what we call a Markovian kernel, but it's just really it's it's a what's called a stochastic matrix. Each row sums to one, and you know if there are if you have n experiences, then there are n rows, and of course there could be m you know columns for however many other agents you want to interact with. You, you probably don't interact directly with all the other agents. You may only interact directly with a subset of them, but the prop your your influences can propagate through the network. So so the math here. For those who are, you know, in computer science, it's network information theory, which is re relatively new, and as everybody knows, very, very difficult. Many of the basic theorems we that we want aren't even proven today, right? So it's right. it's really, really difficult area. But it's network information theory that I'm saying is going to be one of the basic tools we'll need to explore this realm of conscious agents. Mm, makes sense. Cool. Well, let's you know finish up by uh, stepping back from the science and going to the personal. So, you know, I'll ask you a question that I get asked all the time. What does this mean for me uh, that we're in this kind of a reality? And has it, you know, has it made you do anything differently in your life uh, or to view the world differently on an everyday basis? Or does it have no effect on your everyday actions? Well, it, the, it's had multiple effects. I'm still sort of under the um, object permanence illusion right, that I got when I was four months old, that, that's very, very deeply wired. And so when I'm not thinking about this and I just look at objects or I look at the moon, my initial emotional response is that, of course, I'm saying the truth. That's just how we're, we're wired. And so that, that's still there. But, for now, but now it's, that it's starting to lose its grip on me. I'm starting to experience space-time as a VR headset. And I'm, I'm finding that space-time is losing its grip on my imagination and that I'm, I'm being free to think outside of that box. And I think it's for scientists, well, as a scientist, I think it's really powerful to be able to do that. But as a person, too, to realize that um, there's all sorts of possibilities that we can explore beyond space-time. For me, that's pretty exciting. It, it's, it's not it's sort of scary because I thought, you know, we thought we knew everything and, and now essentially we know nothing. We only know our headset and we have no clue what's beyond the headset and, and we have to explore. So for me, it's, it's exciting. It, it's exhilarating. It's terrifying at the same time. So it's, it's, I mean, it's, do you find yourself, you know, looking at a crowd of people and saying, okay, they're just avatars. They're not really there. Uh, like, does that affect how you might, interact with someone or, or, you know, anything like you have an example from day to day, how, how this might affect your, your, at least your thinking, maybe not your actions. <laughs> I, I doubt you're going to go and well, yeah, it, it, for me, just sitting at sitting down here in my chair, as I mentioned earlier, I look at my hand before I thought I knew what I was doing. Now, now I realize that my hand is an incredible mystery. It's just an avatar. And I don't know, really, you know, when I pick up a pencil, I thought I knew what I was doing. Now I have no clue what I'm really doing. So that's pretty, so it, it gives me real questions about me and who I am. Um, it really shakes me up in, in a good way, right? It, it, it shakes me up from my dogmatic slumbers. As <laughs> So you're kind of like Socrates, right? Saying, I know nothing, right. really. Like, I know nothing, but but I'm, I'm, I want to make, um, precise proposals that are probably wrong to try to figure out what, what, what might be going on. 
<laughs> That's great. Well, Don, thanks so much for coming on, on the podcast. This has been a, a really fun conversation and, uh, you know, I hope to have you on again sometime as well. Thank you, Riz. It's a great pleasure. Thanks a lot.